Sam. Go ahead and make your way back to your seats. We're going to get started this morning. Hey, just uh, just a couple of quick housekeeping things before we dive in. Uh, Christy talked about Say Yes Central on the other side of the curtain. Um, if you, last week we talked about the commitment cards that are in your seats. So if you're wondering, what is this card in an envelope in my seat? Uh, we talked last week about you taking this home, talking, talking it over with your family, your kids, things like that. doesn't matter what age you are, if you're an adult, if you're a student. Uh, everybody can get involved in generosity. Um, so these commitment cards are what you um, can commit to giving in terms of support, financial support, uh, to Adventure for the next year, August of 23 to August of 24. Uh, if you brought those with you today, there's a basket on the other side. You can drop those in. Uh, if you want to take this home, pray through it, talk through it with your family, and then bring it back. Uh, we're going to need those in by September 3rd because what we're going to do is we're going to take those uh, and we're going to add them all up and we're going to celebrate that number, whatever that number is. We'll celebrate that number together that our church is planning to and committing to giving over the next year. Uh, and like Christy said, you don't just give to keep the lights on at this place. You don't just give to, to do stuff like that. All right, 10%, almost in fact 11% of every dollar goes out the door to support our mission partners uh, and to do work in the city, in the state, in the country, and around the world, right? So uh, these are anonymous. You don't have to write your name on there at all, right? We're just, we just want you to take this home, pray about it, and figure out what you want to commit to giving over the next year uh, here at Adventure, right? So that's kind of what those are in your seats. If you're wondering, like, what is this thing? That's what it is. Um, so if you, got, if you brought those with you today, you can turn them in. There's a basket on the other side that says put the commitment cards here. Uh, other than that, check out everything we've got going on over at Say Yes Central because there's a lot of really cool ways to get plugged in. I will tell you, a lot of people ask me, what's the, what's the easiest way to, to get plugged in to a community, to a church? Really, there's two ways, get in a group or volunteer, right? Join a group or join a team. If you want to get connected, that's the fastest and easiest and best way to do that, right? So let me pray for us, and then we're, we're going to dive in together. Jesus, we love you. And this morning, Lord, our, our prayer is the same prayer that we prayed last week, and that's that we want to see revival break out, uh, Lord, in our own hearts, in our own families, in our own homes, our own neighborhoods, uh, in the places where we go to school, where we work, where we live, Lord, in this community, and the community that is J-Town, and the city that is Louisville, and that that revival would spread across the state, across the country, coast to coast, and around the world. And Jesus, we know that you are in the business of bringing dead things back to life. And so we know that, Lord, some of us, we walked into this place today feeling pretty dead on the inside. And so, Lord, what we ask today is that you would bring us back to life that you would speak that resurrection life into us and that we would be revived, Father, that we would live again in a new way, this with God life that we talk about so much here, Lord, that you want for us, this life that is abundant and full, not a life uh, that is empty, right, but a life that is full. Lord, we want that. And so today, Father, as we unpack values and priorities, what it means to say it's worth it or what it means to, to say this is important, would you open our eyes to your truth, to the scriptures in a whole new way? Would your spirit begin to do that renovating work within us? to make us new. We know you can do that. We ask for that, and we ask it all in your name. Everybody said? Amen. All right, so every August, the past few years, every August, we teach through a values and priorities series. Now, if you haven't been here for one of these, or maybe you missed last week, I just want to recap a couple of definitions um, so we can all get on the same page, right? The first one is, what are values? Like, so when we talk about values and priorities, what are values? 
values, and the way you want to take notes here at Adventure, if this is your first Sunday, just grab your phone and take a picture of the screen, right? That's the easiest way to do it. Our values are like the principles of life and the ways of living that we put the highest price tag on. Our values say it's worth it to live this way, right? So whether that, we said last week, a couple examples would be it's worth it. To, to, to have a healthy diet, to say no to junk food, fast food, whatever that may be. It's worth it to have a healthy diet. Why? Because it helps us live a healthy life. For some of us in the room, we know that, that sobriety is worth it, right? Because we faced addiction. And we would say it's worth more to live a life that is sober than live a life that is trapped in an addiction. It's worth it to live this way. Right, all of us in the room, right, we're chasing after something. And what, what we would say is we found, for those of us that have trusted Jesus, we found that it's worth it to live the with God life that Jesus makes possible. It's worth it to believe and have faith in Jesus and let that faith kind of transform the way that we live. Right, so our values, what they do is they, they kind of answer the, the why question. Like, why do you live the way that you do? It's because of our values, Right, that's kind of what they do. It's worth it to me to live like this. Now, our priorities, that's how we organize our lives. It's how we organize our lives and our resources in order of importance, right? Because our lives have got, we have limited resources. I mean, we have limited resources, whether it's finances, whether it's time, whether it's attention, whether it's presence, whether it's effort or energy. We cannot give all of us to everything because, one, we would go crazy, and, two, we would just drop dead, right? So we have to have priorities. Priorities are help us with, that's what help us organize our lives, right? So what priorities do is they tell us who or what gets these resources, our time, our effort, our energy, our attention, our presence, and our finances, and how much. Who's going to get my resources, and how much am I willing and able to, to give to them? So if our values are kind of the whys of our life, they, they answer the why question, then the priorities are kind of the how and the what of our lives, right? If I say that, that living this way is worth it to me, then how I'm going to structure my life and what I'm going to do, what I'm going to spend and dedicate my resources to, those are my priorities. That's how I'm going to live the way that I say is worth it to live this way. So the last few years, what we've done here, now we're kind of caught up. The last few years, we, we've taken the month of August to kind of refresh and refocus or, or recommit our lives to values and priorities that we find in Scripture, right? Or maybe for some of us, we are completely rethinking, reworking, and reshaping our values and priorities. What we ultimately determine is worth it and what we say is important or not. Here's why we do this in August. Because in August, we all go through, through a, a pretty similar experience, right? Like it is kind of the, we enter back into school starting, we start balancing schedules, work, school, sports, all that kind of stuff. So I just want to give us a visual example today, right? And, and I think that you'll understand what I'm saying. So let's talk, this, this is what parenting looks like in June and July, right? Running your schedules, like managing things, man, like, like parenting your kids, this is what it looks like in June and July. This is what it looks like in August. Right? Am I, am I, like it just, it's like something happens when the calendar turns from, June, from July to, to August, right? All of a sudden, tempers get shorter. All of a sudden, like, all we can do is yell. Like, for example, this is what it's like. Next picture. This is what it's like in my house around 8.15 when, it start, when we start the bedtime routine, right? It's like, hey, everybody, it's bedtime, Right? It's 8.15, it's time to start winding things down, it's, it's time to kind of do the bedtime routine. So this is 8.15 in my house, this is 8.30 in my house. Go to bed, right? Like, you know what I'm talking about? Again, tempers get short, 
right? We, 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 we find ourselves yelling or frustrated or angry or somewhere in between. Why? Because in August, our lives get sped up to light speed. And instead of being in control of our calendars and our schedules, our calendars and schedules control us. Like in my house right now, between work and school and soccer practices and soccer games, between trying to learn new rhythms and routines and schedules, while also not letting any, any relational things slip through the cracks, right, or letting anyone slip through the cracks in our family. Like, it can feel sometimes like you're being pulled apart at the seams. Like, i got to care about this, and I have to care about that, and I have to care about this, and this needs my time, and this needs my effort, that needs my energy, and i got to pay for that. It can feel kind of like you're getting pulled apart at the seams. And we talked about this last week. We said this, in seasons of stress and anxiety and worry, our values and priorities, the, thing we say, the things we say are worth it and the things that we say are important, get attacked like never before. All of a sudden, everything starts to compete. We go from being able to kind of catch our breath and breathe every now and then to, to now we're trying, we're flipped upside down and we can't figure out what's important and what matters and what's worth it or not. In our men's group on Wednesday night, this is how I know it affects everybody. Somebody in our men's group said this, that everybody has a plan until they get, until they get punched in the mouth. That's a quote by, by Mike Tyson. August, like everybody's got a plan. Like, like in July, if you're, if you're anything like, like Christy and I and our family, like in July we start talking about how, hey, this August won't be like last August. Right? We're going to be ahead of the curve. We know what's coming. Let's prepare ourselves. And then August punches us in the mouth, and all the plans go out the window. So when life gets stressful, right, we, we start to question our values. We start chasing things that aren't really worth it. We start spending our resources on things that really kind of give us instant gratification. There's no depth. There's no substance. There's no quality. We allow non-important things to invade our priorities and take over those top spaces in our lives. And we wonder why. Why am I so tired all the time? Why do I feel unhealthy? How did our relationships get so strained and detached? What happened to our family? Why do we seem so distant from one another? Here's what happened. Somewhere along the line, we allowed our values and our priorities to get compromised. And it might have started out in a really harmless way. Like, I'll just give a little bit of ground here, or, or I'll just give a little bit of my time here, or, or I'll just value something like this a little bit more. We give just a little bit of ground in a harmless way, but here's the truth. If you compromise in one area of your life, it's only a matter of time before you start compromising in other areas of your life. Like, you give up a little bit here, and then you find yourself giving up a little bit more, and a little bit more, and a little bit more to these things that promise that they want to make your life better, these things they promise, they, they, they want to make you seem, they want, they want your life to be more full, right? But really what they want to do is just take from you, right? But we start compromising and we start giving ourselves to these things that really, at the end of the day, they're only going to ask for more. And that's how we find ourselves in these places where we're tired, worn out, burnt out, frustrated, exhausted, angry, sleepy, all of those things and everything in between, right? And this is why our values and our priorities matter so much. There's, a, there's an old saying that I shared last week that says this, that, that your life is perfectly set up to get the results you're currently getting. So a lot of times we, we kind of look at our lives and we're like, man, why, like what happened? Why is it like this? Like your life right now is perfectly set up to get the results you're currently getting. It means this, what you're experiencing in your life right now is the result of how you've set up your values and priorities or, and this is important, how you've allowed them to be set up, to be compromised, to be influenced by someone or something else. And if you want that to change, if you and I want to change those things, it's going to require us to do the work. 
Right? That's why this series is called what it is. Because let's just be honest, to change something in our lives, it requires work. But here's the key, all right? Here's the key in this. I want to make sure we understand this. 90% of doing the work is showing up. Right? 90% of it's showing up. It's being willing to get out of bed, show up, do the things you need to do, right? It's being willing to not quit, to not hit the snooze button or roll over again and go back to sleep, pull the covers over your head and pretend that the day doesn't exist. you got to do the work. you got to show up. 90% of that is showing up, right? If you don't show up, you can't do the work. You can't do the work if you're not willing to take some responsibility. And last week I said this, right? It's okay. We say this at Adventure all the time. It's okay to be not okay. Like Christy said up here, she said, like, this is a place you can come as you are. You don't have to check your mess at the door in a church like Adventure. A lot of other churches, maybe it feels different. Maybe it feels like you have to clean yourself up and look like you got your act together. You don't have to do that here. We meet in an old warehouse, for crying out loud, right? Like, this is a shorts, shorts and t-shirt kind of place, right? So, so it's okay to be not okay, but it's not okay to stay not okay, which is kind of the other part of our why statement at Adventure. Right? Come as you are, but... Become all that God desires you to be. It's okay to be not okay, but it's not okay to stay not okay. So the next few weeks, what we're going through, we're, we're taking a fresh approach to when it comes to our church's values and priorities. We call them the high five. There's five of them, right? And they're personal and organizational. So I know a lot of us, when it comes to trying to figure out values and priorities, it's hard to do that. It's like, we're, are we supposed to make this stuff up on our own? That's why we have values and priorities here at a church, because it's not just meant to guide the, the inner workings of the church. Our values and priorities are for you to take home, for you to apply to your life and your family. That's what they're meant for. They're personal and they're organizational. And they're all rooted in the truth of Scripture, right? Everything that we value here and everything that we prioritize here all comes from what we see in the life of Jesus. So to do this, this August, we've been reading through the story of a guy named Nehemiah who did work. Like, he did work. And what I'm hoping and praying is that what we can do together is as, as we look through his story, we can see what happens when someone like you and I sees a not okay situation but does the work so that it doesn't stay not okay. I mean, that's really what this is. If you kind of want to look through Scripture, and a lot of times we say this too, that the Bible people are just people. Bible people are people like you and I. Nehemiah was a dude just like us, right? He's not special because he's in the Bible. He just said yes to God. He just said yes to Jesus, right? He trusted what the Spirit was doing in his own life, and he said yes. And what Nehemiah did was he saw a situation that was not okay, and he did work to make sure that that situation didn't stay not okay. And that work was driven by values and priorities, right? They're not just talked about, but they're activated, so the questions we're looking to answer is kind of this. What does it look like when someone like us, when a church family like us, decides to rethink and recommit and do the work when it comes to living out our values and priorities that are instead of rooted in ourselves, instead of rooted in what the world values, culture values, work values, school values, instead of rooted in what happens when our values and priorities get rooted in the truth of who God is and the life that he desires for us. I mean, that's really it. That's really the point of this whole thing. What would life look like if instead of chasing my own values and trying to come up with my own priorities, if I started to live into what God's dream is for me and the rest of the world? What impact could someone like that, could a church like that, with those values and priorities make on a community, on a people, on families around us? So if you've got your Bibles in front of you, your Bible app, we're going to be in Nehemiah chapter 2. So Nehemiah is about 35, 45% 
of the way through your Bible, depending on if your Bible is like big print or not, okay? So Nehemiah chapter 2, uh, about a third of the way, maybe a little more than a third of the way in the Old Testament, right? That's where Nehemiah is. Nehemiah chapter 2, we're going to pick up kind of where we, where we left off last week. And again, I would encourage you, if you, if you want to dig more into this, go back and watch last week's sermon, right? Because we went through like all of the history and things. We, we talked about like 250 years of church history in like five minutes. So Nehemiah chapter 2, we're airdropping in today. This is Nehemiah talking. He said, I said to them, them, or the people who are living in Jerusalem, you see the trouble we're in. You can see the trouble we're in and how Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. He said, come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision, which is shame, right? We all know shame. A lot of us in this room, we know what shame feels like. Shame is like concrete. It sets up around your soul. And Nehemiah, it's like, his thing is, yeah, I want to build a wall. We talked about last week how Nehemiah cared more about the people than he did the place. He still cared about the place, but he also cared a lot about the people. He wants to build a wall, right, to, to kind of restore the place. But what he really is after is repairing the shame in the hearts of the people. That's what he's after. The wall is just a good way to do that. And just so we know what this makes sense, all right, I, I read this in the message, right? Here's what it says. Then I gave them my report. Face it. We're in a bad way here. Jerusalem is a wreck. Its gates are burned up. Come, let's build the wall of Jerusalem and not live with this disgrace any longer. Now, does that sound familiar to anyone? Like, I don't know about you, but I'm pretty sure I had this conversation with my family on Thursday. Like, it was, let's just face it, right? This is a wreck. Like, can you see what's, have, has anyone looked around? It's like cats and dogs and everybody running. It was crazy, right? Like, we've got to fix this. Again, if you don't believe that Bible people are people people, that should be your evidence right there, right? We all get this. Like earlier this week, as, as Christy and I were plugging things into our family calendar, we're trying to get school stuff worked out, right? Like, again, we looked at our calendar and went, whoa, like we're in a bad way here. We need to kind of rebuild and rethink how we're doing our lives because at this point, our calendars and schedules are controlling us versus the other way around. So I want to press pause here for just a second. If you've, if you've never heard this story, right, we don't have time to do the full recap, so let me just do a quick flyby. So about 140, 150 years before this moment in Nehemiah chapter 2, the, this, the, a group of people called the Babylonians conquered Judah. Judah was the southern part of the kingdom of Israel. And when they did that, they destroyed the walls around Jerusalem. They burned the gates. They tore down the temple. And then they exported and deported all of the young, strong, and healthy people in Judah to be their servants and their slaves throughout their empire. They left behind the old, poor, sick, and weak, defenseless in a city to kind of get picked off. It's like, we don't have to do much about this. The people surrounding this city will come in and they'll pick off these old, sick, unhealthy people. We don't have to worry about it. They'll just die that way, right? So essentially what we can know is they're not okay. The people in Jerusalem, they're not okay. So about 140, 150-ish years later, Nehemiah, who is one of the servants of the king, the Persian king, gets word of the situation, the status of the people in Jerusalem. And despite being born in captivity, which is what he was, Nehemiah had never known a life where he was not a slave or a servant to a foreign king. But despite that, Nehemiah had these uncompromised values and priorities. Nehemiah, he says, he hears about what's going on in Jerusalem. He says, it's not okay for them to stay not okay. And he does something about it. See, it's worth it. Nehemiah had this value. It's worth it to make sure to help the people in Jerusalem. It's worth it to me to do that. 
And so what he's going to do is he's going to use every resource. He's going to restructure his priorities around his values to try to help the people in Jerusalem. And so instead of saying, staying in the palace with the king, which is a pretty cushy life. I mean, Nehemiah had a good life. He lived in the palace. He worked for the king. He was one of the king's advisors. He had an influential job. And he leaves all of that behind to go to a defenseless city full of old, sick, and poor people to rebuild it. That's what I mean when I say different values create different priorities. Different values will cause you to act and do things in a different way. And so the value and priority we're talking about today in our church is this. We step into the mess. We hold that as a value and a priority both as a church and for us as people. We have to be people who are willing to step into messy situations, who are willing to step close to and be with messy people. And really what it comes down to is it's we live on mission. As a people, as a church, we want to be on mission. We want to live on mission wherever we are and wherever we go. And so this value says this, we can't care, we can't love and care for others from a distance. You just can't. It's hard to love and care for other people being really far away from them. And so like Jesus, who left heaven, came to earth, stepped in our mess, we're not afraid to get our hands dirty in order to love and serve sacrificially. It's going to cost you something. It's going to cost you something. Living on mission, stepping into the mess, just count on it. It will cost you something. And so I want to explain this. This isn't just like signing up for a service project. It's not limited to going on a short-term mission trip. When we talk about stepping in the mess, we're talking about a lifestyle. It's a way of living that stands at the ready, unafraid, to step into the messy lives of people, to step into messy situations, to admit the own mess in our lives. That's what it means. It's a way of living that just is unafraid of mess. And so here's what we know. We, we know that Nehemiah had this value, right? He had stepping in the mess as a value and a priority in his life. But what I want to unpack today for us is really what, what goes into this. Like how do we becomes someone like Nehemiah who is unafraid of messy people in messy situations, right? It's not just, I mean, I could stand up here and go, hey, y'all, step into the mess. That's it. We're done. Shortest sermon you've ever had from me in your life. But I've got more, right? So what does it take for us to develop this kind of courageous and fearless way of living? So what I want to do is back up in chapter 2. Go back to verse 1. It says this, in the month of Nisan, in the, 12th, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when the wine was before him, I took up the wine and I gave it to the king. Now, Nehemiah was the cupbearer. He told us in chapter 1 that he was the cupbearer to the king, King Artaxerxes. And Nehemiah, what that meant being the cupbearer was that, that you were the one who, one, kind of picked out the wine that the king would like. It's like, you know, they're, they're down in the, the southern part of the king's, you know, winter palace. It's like maybe you want something like it's winter time. Maybe you want like a nice red, Okay. Like he's going to pick the wine, he's going to pour the wine for the king, but then he's also going to taste the wine first in case it's poisoned so that Nehemiah dies instead of the king, right? So that was, how, that was his job. He was, a, he was an important trusted advisor to the king. It says this, Nehemiah says, Now I had not been sad in his, the king's presence. And so the king said to me, Why is your face sad? You're not sick. There's nothing, but this is nothing but sadness of the heart. And then Nehemiah says this, I was very much afraid. Here's why. Let's press pause right here. This is a big deal. One of the commentaries that I read said that this, that, that those who were in service to the king, to these Persian kings, they were expected and required to keep their personal feelings hidden. And they were always to display like a, a, a cheerful countenance. They're always to look happy, right? Fake it till you make it. That sound familiar to anybody, right? So in the presence of the king, 
most people would actually put their hands over their mouths, one, to hide any kind of emotion they may be feeling, but also so that their breath would not defile the king. And culturally speaking, Persian kings were kind of crazy, right? They were nuts. One king, one Persian king before Artaxerxes had a rich man come up and try to buy him off, right? To offer him a bribe to keep this rich man's son from, from going into war. And this Persian king took this man's bribe, but then had the man's son cut in half and placed on either side of the road where the army walked out to go to battle. It's like, yeah, your son, will, he, he won't be sent to battle, but he'll be a living, breathing example to everyone in my kingdom that tries to get out of going to fight. I'll cut him in half, and the army will walk in between him. They're nuts. Persian kings are kind of crazy. Another Persian king had his palace. He built a palace by the sea, nice beach house, right, really nice. It was destroyed by the weather. And so what he did was he ordered the ocean to be flogged and beaten for destroying his palace. Kind of crazy, right? Persian kings, not the most stable individuals. So for Nehemiah to appear to be sad before the king was potentially a death sentence. So Nehemiah says, I'm, I'm afraid. And then he says this, I said to the king, let the king live forever. Why, why shouldn't I be sad? When the city, the place of my father's graves, lie in, lies in ruins and the gates have been destroyed by fire. And then the king said to me, what are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you would send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. So here's the first thing we can take away from this. By, by stepping into the presence of the king, not hiding or repressing or denying how he's feeling, Nehemiah has already stepped into the mess by admitting that there is one. And this is important. Because church, whether it's personally or whether it's in the lives of people around you, coworkers, neighbors, friends, family, you can't fix what you don't see as broken. If it's not broken, if, it, if you don't think it's a problem, then you can't fix it. You won't pay attention to it. Nehemiah sees something that's broken. He sees a problem and he says, listen, I can't, I can't try to fake this. I can't try to hide this. The first way we step into the mess is we have to admit that there is one. And so Nehemiah, because he sees a mess, he steps into a dangerous place in front of a dangerous person, the king of Persia. And he told him the truth. He didn't hide it. He told him the truth about what needed to be done for the people in Jerusalem. But like, like last week, activating this value and priority doesn't start with boots on the ground in a messy, in a messy place. Like, Nehemiah didn't start with chapter 2, verse 17, when he arrives on the scene in Jerusalem. It starts a long time before that. So stepping into the mess, what we see here, stepping into the mess means this, that prayer becomes a priority. There's this kind of blink and you miss it verse. It says this in verse 4, the king said to me, what do you want? And then Nehemiah says, so I prayed to the God of heaven. One author I read this week said this, despite his fear, Nehemiah stood not only in the presence of an earthly monarch, but also before the king of the heavens, and he made requests of both. So yeah, Nehemiah is standing in front of King Artaxerxes, who's a scary dude. And Artaxerxes is the most powerful man on the planet, but Nehemiah is also standing in front of the God of the heavens, who's the most powerful man in the universe. 
And we don't know what Nehemiah prayed in this moment, but we can get a pretty good guess. Because if you flip back in chapter 1 and you look at his prayer, like when he finds out that Jerusalem has been torn up and is lying in ruins and the people there are suffering, he starts praying by simply proclaiming who God is. Like, just look at verse 5 in chapter 1 for an example. It says this, O Lord of heaven, the great and awesome God, who keeps covenants and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Here's what I love about this. It's called proclamation prayer. Right? This kind of praying is called proclamation prayer. And here's what it is. Here's what proclamation prayer does. It does two things. One, you don't ask for anything. In proclamation prayer, you're not asking for anything. And two, you're not telling God about a messy situation you're telling a messy situation about God. Because God already knows. It might freak some of us out in the room. God knows your mess, even if you're really good at hiding it. And when you, when you share with God about the mess in your life, God, this is a messy situation. He goes, I know. I know. And so at some point, it's, 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 it's kind of a change in the way that we pray. Because God already knows about your mess. But does your mess know about him? That's the question. And I love this. Every, every trait and characteristic of God in proclamation prayer isn't just a descriptor, it's a promise. When we share and we declare and we proclaim who God is, we declare a promise. And God's the only one that that's true about, right? Because he always is who he is. He's never not the Lord of heaven. God is never not great and awesome. God is never not a keeper of his covenants. God is never not steadfast with his love to those who love him. And because every attribute of God is a promise from God, let me ask you this. Who are you praying for? Like, as you pray, who are you praying for? And it's okay to pray for yourself. It's okay to pray for your family. I just want to, just think about that. Who are you praying for? If, if just all you have to do is declare the things that are true about God, and those things are promises, who are you doing that for? What situation in your life or someone else's situation in their life, instead of telling God about their mess, you're telling their mess about him. If you want to do this, back in the back wall as you leave today, we've got these ping pong balls in this case, right? It's called prayer, care, and share, right? You, can, you grab a little card, you write down people's names in these little, like, circles. People you're going to pray for, people you're going to pray for opportunities to, to take care of them, and people that you're going to pray for an opportunity to share the gospel with. It's all about prayer. People that you're going to proclamation pray, you're going to pray their situation. You're not going to pray their situation to God, but you're going to pray about God to their situation. Three people that you're willing to pray for. Two people that you're willing to pray and ask God for opportunities to intentionally care for them. And then one person, you write their name, that you're going to pray and ask God for an opportunity. Hey, God, would you give me an opportunity to share your gospel with this person? And then you take their initials, you write them on ping pong balls, and you drop them back in the, in the little case there. And we want to fill that up because every single ping pong ball in that case is someone who's being prayed for, someone who's being cared for, and someone who ultimately is going to hear the truth of the gospel. Prayer, church, is where mission begins. Here's the proof. Check out chapter 2, verse 6. He says this, And the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, How long will you be gone? And when will you return? So Nehemiah gives him an answer. Like, how long have you be gone, man? Well, I don't know. Prob- it's going to be a while, right? It's going to be a while. It's a big project. A few months, maybe a few years. It's going to take a minute. And this is this. So it pleased the king to send me when I'd given him a time. One pastor I listened to this week said this. In this instant, covert prayer leads to competent plans. 
And so the takeaway, the first takeaway for us as we want to be people who activate stepping into the mess is this. Stepping into the mess requires us to first make prayer a priority. Who are you praying for? Who are you praying for opportunities to care for? Who are you praying for opportunities to share the gospel with? Let's pick back up. Chapter 2, verse 7. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king, let letters be given to me, to the governors of the province beyond the river, that, that, they, that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah. And a letter go to, be sent to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates, for the fortresses of the temple, and for the wall of the city, and also for, you know, a place for me to live. Like, I need a place to stay. And I love it. Nehemiah, like, in this moment, gets kind of bold real fast. It's like, well... If you're pleased to send me, then would it also please you to help me out in a few other ways? I said this last week, but just to refresh our memories, this this isn't the first time that someone tried to rebuild Jerusalem in the 140, 150 years that it had been destroyed. In fact, it happened a few times. And every time someone would try to rebuild that city, the king would, would command and demand, right, under penalty of death, that they stop working. Because they were afraid that, that if they rebuilt Jerusalem, then all of the people that they took captive to be servants and slaves in their empire would rise up and rebel against them. The last king to stop the work and threaten the people under penalty of death and execution to stop rebuilding Jerusalem was King Artaxerxes. The same king that Nehemiah stood in front of and said, hey, would you let me go back to Jerusalem and rebuild it? He was the last king that looked at a group of people and said, if you try to rebuild this city, I will kill you. It's kind of scary. So there's a big part of me when I read this, I start to think, like, Nehemiah, you've got to learn to quit while you're ahead, my dude, right? Like, but Nehemiah is not, is not afraid to ask for help. He knows from a political standpoint that King Artaxerxes is the most powerful man on the planet. And if someone like Nehemiah, being a Jewish guy, goes to Jerusalem, the governors in the surrounding area that are loyal to King Artaxerxes will think that maybe he's an escaped prisoner or maybe he's, he's part of the resistance movement and they may try to kill him or recapture him. So when they start repairing the city, those in power are going to assume that they're rebuilding the city against, against the king's orders, and they're going to take it upon themselves to stop them by force. So Nehemiah, he asked for letters from the king to the governors in the area. He says, listen, I don't want to run into political trouble, and then I don't want them to stop us and try to kill us. So could, could I have you just sign this note that says, it's okay. And then he asked for something else. Says King, since this is a building project, I'm going to need some supplies. Would you mind talking to Asaph and the lumber department so I can have the materials I need to rebuild the city? And check out the end of verse 8. It says this, and the king granted me what I asked, for the good hand of my God was upon me. How do you think the good hand of God got there? Prayer. That's where he started. He involved God in stepping into the mess. And at the end of the day, he got everything he needed on, on that list. And so here's our next takeaway when it comes to activating this value in our lives, right? When it comes to stepping into the mess and living on mission, we must value partnerships and provisions. See, prayer is a top priority. It's important. But partners and provisions, the supplies we need, right, they're tops when it comes to what we value. They're worth it. They're worth every bit of what it costs to develop key partnerships, to secure all the proper provisions and supplies that you need to accomplish the task that's ahead of you. When it comes to stepping in the mess and living on mission, we've got to think through this. Who can help me? Who can help and how? 
whether it's removing red tape, whether it's removing roadblocks, other kinds of obstacles in culture, right, that, that can slow us down or get in our way. Who can help us by providing the tools that we need to get the job done? At Adventure, we have strategic mission partners. You can find them on our website if you want to know who they are, or you can talk to someone on our missions team. You can talk to my wife, Christy. She would love to share with you about our mission partners. We have mission partners that are here in the state. Crossroads, Crossroads Missions is just down the street. They're like a block away. That's one of our mission partners. Waterstep, one of our mission partners, right? They're here in Louisville. They do work with health and hygiene and clean water all over the world. It's worth it for us to partner with them. It's worth it for us to partner with Crossroads. We have partners in the Middle East. We have partners in Africa. We have partners in Japan that we support. We give to them financially because we're partnered together. We support the work that they do in these fields. It matters to partner. And they didn't ask to be famous, but I'm going to make them famous because they should be famous. Jeff and Jean Ballard here in, in Louisville, right? They started, they started just, you know, in the middle of COVID, they, they started delivering food down to, to little pantries in the Russell neighborhood and in the surrounding area, working with J-Town Area Ministries. Now, you fast forward a few years later, and here's what they would say. All we did was obey Jesus one yes at a time. Yeah, we'll do that. Yeah, we'll do that. More people kind of came to, their, to them saying, hey, do you want this? Or, hey, can we partner with you? Or, hey, can we give you some food? Hey, can we give you our leftovers? Right? Hey, do you, can you hand this stuff out? Here's some clothes. How about that? Here's an entire high school gym full of clothes and toys and food. Can you guys use that? Yes. And what started with filling, filling one or two little pantries is now a citywide food ministry. It's amazing. Yeah, you can, you can clap for that. And that's what happens when people like us just say, okay, Jesus, one yes at a time. It impacts an entire city. Families have food because they are willing to step into the mess. That's what it looks like to, to build partners and, and to find provisions. And so that kind of brings us up to speed, right? It catches us up to where we started in Nehemiah and kind of the wreckage and ruins of a burned out and destroyed city. Literally standing in the mess. Nehemiah chapter 2, 17, he's standing in the mess. And so here's what we know. When we make prayer a priority and we value partnership and provision, then we can get in close proximity to messy people and messy situations. Let's pick up in verse 17. It says this. Then I said to him, do you see the trouble we're in? Notice, not you. He doesn't say like, good gosh, y'all. What, look what you've done with this place. He says this. You see the trouble we are in. He's in close proximity. He's putting himself in that situation. How Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. He said, come let us, not you, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem. Again, in close proximity. That we, not just you, no longer suffer shame. And I told them about the hand of my God that had been on me, you know, for good. That's prayer. And also the words of the king that had spoken over me. That's partnership and provision. And they said this, let's rise up and build the wall. When the people had heard about, they saw someone who was willing to step in the mess with them, to get in proximity of them. When they heard about his prayer and how God answered his prayer and the partnerships and provisions that were made available to him, the people say, let's do this. And so they strengthened their hands for the good work. But it says this, when, when Sanballat, great name, the Heronite, and Tobiah, the Ammonite, servant, and Geshem, the Arab, when they heard of this, they jeered at us and despised us and said, what is this thing that you're doing? Are you rebelling against the king? And then I replied to them, the God of heaven will make us prosper, he says, because we're his servants, and his servants will arise and build. You have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. 
The last thing that we need to kind of wrap our heads around when it comes to stepping into the mess and living on mission is that we need to be prepared for persecution. See, if you fast forward to chapter 4, as they start to rebuild, kind of these guys that stood in opposition to Jerusalem, these guys who had taken advantage of people, the, the poor, sick, unhealthy, weak people that lived in Jerusalem, those guys that had kind of taken advantage of them for years and years and years, when they see them start to rebuild, they're like, hold on. You're threatening kind of the territory that we've claimed. You're threatening our operation. And they try to make it stop. And that persecution just kind of ramps up. It starts with they despised us, they jeered us, they insulted us, they spread lies about us, they gossiped about us. And it moves into this. It says this, when Sanballat and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the, the Ashadites, when they heard that the repairing of the walls in Jerusalem was going forward and the breaches, the holes in the wall, were get, beginning to be closed, they were very angry. And they plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion in it. Nehemiah says this, and we prayed, there's prayer, to our God, and we set a guard, partnership, as protection, provision, against them day and night. When our enemies heard it, that, that it was known to us, that we found out about their plan, right, that God had frustrated their plan, we all returned to the wall, each to his work. From that day on, catch this, half of my servants worked on construction and half held spears, shields, bows, and coats of mail, right, armor, and the leaders stood behind the whole house of Judah who were building the wall. Those who carried burdens were loaded in such a way that each labored on with the work with one hand held on his weapon, and with one hand holding the load, right, the burden, and the other hand on his weapon. So each of the builders had his sword strapped to his side while he built. The man who sounded the trumpet was next to me. In the place where you hear the sound of the trumpet, he said, rally to us, that's where the fight is. So we labored at the work, and half of them held spears from the break of dawn until the stars came out. So here's what we can take away from this. When it comes to stepping in the mess, here's what we need. It starts with prayer. And then we look for partnerships. We look for the provisions, the supplies we need. And when we have that, we're able, we're able to get in proximity. You can't serve and love someone and care for someone from a distance. You have to be in close proximity with them. And then we have to be prepared for persecution to protect ourselves and those around us. Because here's the deal. We have a very real and very cunning and very crafty enemy who is set on killing us, stealing from us, and destroying us. He doesn't like to give up territory. Satan does not like to give up the territory that he's claimed in our hearts, in our minds, in our souls, in our bodies. But here's the truth, church. That territory does not belong to him. He's just squatting. But I'm telling you, he won't go down without a fight. And the sooner we can wrap our heads around that, the sooner we can begin to be prepared and protected against persecution. First Peter 5 tells us this. Peter says, be sober-minded. Be watchful. Why? Because your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him by being firm in your faith. Peter says, listen, stand your ground and don't back down. In Ephesians, Paul tells us this, that we're to put on the whole armor of God. That way we're able to be, we will be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we don't wrestle, get this, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. A lot of the times, church, we take the fight to the wrong place. I'm just being honest. A lot of the times we take the fight to the wrong people. We point out people instead of 
the principality that's behind it. We try to fight against flesh and blood when really the thing that we need to be armored up and fighting against is not that, but it's the spiritual forces. You gotta know who you're fighting. You gotta know what weapons to bring. If you wanna know what weapons to bring, read Ephesians 6. You'll figure it out real quick. Paul kind of goes through a whole list of things that you are to bring to the fight to protect yourself and to be, be prepared for persecution. And then Jesus says this in John 16. He says, I've, I've told you these things, right, that in me you, have, you may have peace. Because in the world, Jesus says, you will have tribulation. Some translations will say trials. Some translations will say trouble. Jesus doesn't say, hey, in the world, you might run into some hard stuff every now and then. No, Jesus says, you, you will. And I know I've shared this in here before. I had a youth pastor back in the day that he said this thing, and I've remembered it ever since. It's like life is just a series of storms. You're either in one, going into one, or coming out of one, getting ready to go into another one, right? That's just kind of how it is. Jesus says, in this world, you're going to run into trouble. You're going to run into storms. You're either in one, you're going in one, or you're coming out of one. But then Jesus says this, take heart because I've overcome the world. I think this is important for us to remember, church, and this is why I'm gonna say it today. We have to know, we have to remember who wins. And that's Jesus. Like, God doesn't lose. And Jesus, being fully man and fully God, he doesn't lose. And because of that, when, he, when we are invited into his family, we don't lose. We don't suffer defeat. So when we know who wins, that means we can't quit. When we know who wins, we're less likely to hang it up. We're less likely to walk away. We're less likely to go, that was just way too hard. Why? Don't, don't quit. Don't give up. Why? Because Jesus wins. And because Jesus wins, we win. So I'm going to close with this. For us to, to kind of activate and do the work of being people that step into the mess, we, number one, have to be praying people. And there's a difference between being a praying person and being a person that prays. A person that prays kind of does it every now and then, but a praying person has these conversations with God all the time where you're not necessarily telling God about your messy situation or a messy situation, but you're telling that situation about him. We have to seek out partnerships and provisions. We have to find people, whether it's people in the church, whether it's people in our community that can, that can kind of help us get into these messy places, who can provide us with the things that we need to be able to make a difference in the lives of people, whether it's food, whether it's shelter, whether it's clothes, whether it's just a conversation. Church, we have to be willing to be in close proximity. Like our high five says, you cannot love and care for people from a distance. You can't. And lastly, you've got to be prepared. That was like, we went to like a minor key right there. That was scary. Can you tell I, tell I did not take my ADD medicine this morning? Lastly, church, we've got to be prepared for persecution, which means this. I'm going to say this real clear, okay? Being prepared for persecution does not mean we look for fights or start them. I see a lot of times a lot of outrage that makes its way onto social media. Things that we're able to say from behind a keyboard that we would never say to someone in person. Being prepared for persecution doesn't mean that we look for fights or we start fights, but we're prepared when the fight hits our door. We carry the burdens of others while having our, our other hand on, on the sword. And so I want to invite you, like we said, all month long, it's say yes. Say yes to stepping into the mess. 
say yes to joining in, in a group of people that are messy just like you so that you can grow together. Whether that's a, a life group that meets in homes or a study group that meets here, right? Say yes to serving. Say yes to volunteering. Here's the thing I love about this. There are messy people in this place that you could step right into their lives. You could step into the life of, of a child who's going through all kinds of crazy stuff. You could step into the life of a student. I mean, again, just remember your middle school years? Would you want to repeat those? No. How much do you back then need you now? There are so many students in this place that need someone to come into their lives to partner with our student staff, to partner with Casey, to come in and say, listen, I'll step into the mess, and it's messy. It smells like Axe Body Spray and B.O. As a, as a church, we need you to say yes to giving, to supporting this place so that we can continue to support the work of God in our city and with our mission partners around the world and around the country. Say yes to being generous with your finances. It's not so that we can buy new gear or new equipment. It's not so that we can be flashy. It's so that we can support other people. We can put meals on tables, keep lights on, pay for rent, keep roofs over people's heads, put clothes on their back, and to work with our partners all over the country and all over the world to do the same. Say yes to stepping into the mess. I'm going to pray for us and we're going to worship. If today you want to join our church, you want to learn a little bit more about our church, I'll be right down here. You can meet me. I'd love to chat with you about that. If you need prayer this morning, I'd love to pray with you. You can also spend some time in prayer right up here. There's a nice little place that you can kneel right here. It's, it's cushioned. It's wonderful. Spend some time in front of the cross. If, if today you want to say yes to Jesus, to begin to live the way that Nehemiah lived, with this fear that says, listen, doesn't matter what the schemes of the enemy are, he can't win. Why? Because he got the Holy Spirit working inside of me. If you want to say yes to Jesus, I'd love to chat with you about that as well. I'll pray for us and then we'll worship. Jesus, we love you. And we pray all this in your name, Lord. We, we know that, that you are good. We know that what you want for us is good. Lord, you, we know that, that when it comes to stepping into the mess and the lives of others, you choose us to be your hands and your feet. You invite us into your mission and movement to make disciples. You invite us into your mission and movement to rescue the sick and the hurting and the poor and the weak. But, Lord, that requires us to step out with fearlessness and, and courage. To not be afraid about what will happen to our reputation. To not be afraid of what would happen, you know, what we might lose or, or what, we, what we might spend, Lord. But to know that, that this is going to advancing your kingdom in the life of another. So Jesus, we pray for this this morning. You would move in our hearts and that we would say yes. Maybe we've been living in isolation too long. And it's time to say yes to take our mess and step into the mess with other people. To join a community. Maybe for us it is. It's time for us to take the, the stories and the messes of the past and, and use those, whether it's in the life of a kid or a, or a student or whether that's, a, that's someone who opens the door as a smiling face or someone walking in who's feeling the weight and shame of the night before or the guilt of the week before. And instead of being met by someone who's going to point a finger at them, they're met with a smile. This is where you're supposed to be. And Lord, for some of us, maybe it's time to say yes. It's like, I'm going, to, I'm going to take a portion of my finances and I'm going to give it to this place so that they can support, so that we can support the work that you're doing around the world with our partners. We can continue to supply them with what they need to take the gospel all over the place from one end of the earth to the other. So Jesus, as we worship, would you fill our hearts? Would revival break out within us, within this family, within this church, within this community, within this state, within this nation, within this world? That's what we want to see. Bring us back to life, Lord. We love you. Amen. Let's stay in worship.